0: Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The Apostle Paul, when he writes this letter to Titus, he's writing as as he says in verse 1, as a slave of God or bondservant of God and as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He identifies himself as he does typically at the beginning of his letters because this is the typical way in the first century of writing letters. Greek letters were often written this way with the author of the letter putting his name there first so that when it is unfolded, it was rolled in a scroll, when it's unfolded, you can see first who received or or who sent the letter. And that's typically what we wanna know whenever we receive a a message from anyone, we wanna know who first sent it. We, we want to know who it is, and then we read its contents. So here, the Apostle Paul describes himself as a bondservant or slave of God. He's not enslaved to himself. He's not slave to others. He's a slave of God. He used to be a slave of himself. He used to be a slave of sin and Satan. He used to do the things of the world and society. He used to be that way, but he was converted miraculously. Acts chapters 9... And 22, 23, 24, 26. These chapters in the book of Acts describe his pre-conversion and post-conversion. He describes for himself, and also Luke describes the way he used to be, but now the way he is now, because of what Jesus has done. Jesus goaded him, he pricked against him, he changed his hard heart into a soft heart, and made him a disciple and an apostle. This is the life of Paul. He even describes his own life in various other places. For example, Philippians chapter 3 also is a description the way he used to be, but the way he is now and what he lives for now. He's not living for himself. He lives for God as a slave of God, which means that he has to consider God as his master. Right. Whenever the master tells the slave to do this, he must do it, or to do that, he has to do it. He has to do whatever is according to the will of God. Therefore, he has to know the Master's will. And we who are Christians, we ought to consider Christ as our Master. As it says in Jude, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. In Jude, Jude describes the false teachers as those who deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They deny Him his person and his work but also they practice licentiousness that is they practice debauchery and all kinds of loose living the way that they all want to live according to their own whims they live that way instead of living for Christ but Paul is not like that not only is Paul not supposed to be that way but we're not supposed to be that way Amen. we we do not have the office of apostle as he did but we still have the Christian life and we are we are disciples of Christ we belong to him so we should always be asking what does my master want me to do what does he want me to do today secondly he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ an apostle is one who's commissioned with a message and the commissioner is Jesus Christ he's commissioned him to preach the gospel and also to have this unique office as apostle, because an apostle, according to Acts chapter 1, 21 to 26, he has to be one who was a witness of the resurrection of Christ and who personally saw Christ. That's a de- basic definition of an apostle. Actually, there also it says that the 12 apostles had to be those who were with Jesus in his ministry from Jesus' baptism until his resurrection and ascension. That he had to be like that. Paul was not that way specifically um, in that he followed Christ from Christ's baptism, but he was an apostle in that he was uniquely chosen, Acts chapter 9, Galatians chapter 1 even. He said that he's not an apostle through the agency of man, not because of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. This is the way that Jesus Uh, appointed uh, Paul specifically as a unique apostle. He's an apostle of Christ, therefore he has the message of Christ. The people that he's addressing to Titus to combat, these people do not have a commission from Christ. They do not have the authority of Christ. The apostle Paul does. This relates now to the contents of this letter this letter along with first and second timothy all three of them are known as the pastoral epistles because timothy and titus both were young men commissioned and called into the ministry they were appointed to oversee churches and to guide them as a pastor would guide churches so that's why these epistles are known as pastoral epistles that's what we call them not what the bible calls them although the contents are quite evident That they are pastors of churches and they need to be guided into the proper instruction and guidance of those churches. Well, what is in Titus, and even for that matter in Timothy, that is common? Common to their circumstances. Timothy in Ephesus and Titus in an island called Crete. In verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's southeast of Greece. Even modern Greece, it's southeast of that, uh, about 75 to 100 miles southeast of it. It's an island nation. Titus was left there by the Apostle Paul to oversee this ministry. Titus and the Apostles, wherever they went and preached, they would preach the true gospel. They would convert first Jews, they would go into the synagogue, and once the Jews to a point, they received... They were fine, but once they rejected and blasphemed and rejected and wanted to stone and kill these apostles, then they would leave the the, uh, the Jews and go to the Gentiles and preach to the Gentiles. Then churches would be established consisting of Jews and Gentiles together, worshiping the same true and living God through Jesus Christ through the one and only gospel. But. After there was a group of believers meeting from place to place, city to city, village to village, false teachers inevitably, either among them already or those on the outside would come in and not spare the flock. The wolves would come in from the outside to the inside into the fold of the sheep or some of the sheep were actually wolves and goats pretending to be sheep. Both circumstances occurred And that would bring conflict, division. It would bring fault-finding and false teaching. That's what Titus had to deal with, Timothy had to deal with, and this is the universal problem. The human condition is the same, because human sin is the same. And the issues are the same. We all need the gospel, yet we have to fight against sin and its various manifestations. So, he has to deal with the teaching What is the true gospel? He has to deal with the response to it, how to live in light of that true gospel. And what commandments should we obey and what commandments do we not need to obey? Should we obey the commandments of men or not? Should we obey this or that book or this or that theology, this or that philosophy or not? Or just obey the word of God? And then how to properly understand the word of God? All of these are issues that come up in the preaching and teaching of the gospel. As well, the relationships, the relationships between old and young people, old and young men, um, the, the men with the women, the old and young women, and all of these relationships in church life, in family life, how to raise children, all of these issues come up in guiding a church. And these are the issues that Titus faces, and Paul knows Titus is facing them. That's why he instructs them in this letter. Instruction on all these kinds of issues. All right, men. He says, he writes, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. He's writing for the faith of the people, the faith of the readers, the faith of the hearers of this letter. This is common to write in order for there to be benefit and a buttressing of the faith that people already have. They have the faith because the Word of God was preached to them. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. But that faith has to be built up. It has to be strengthened. It has to be spread, even, from one to another. It has to... And this is the reason why he writes. Therefore, this letter is not a restricted letter only for a certain class of people, only for pastors and elders and deacons of churches. It's not merely for them. It is for them to properly help the faith of everybody. Everybody who claims the name of Christ. And specifically here, those chosen of God. You see, the faith has to be built up in the chosen of God or the elect of God. Those who are chosen by God... For salvation, their faith has to be increased because God has them as the recipients. He has them as his objects of love and mercy. They are the ones chosen of God and it is their faith that is built up. And he says, And the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth is, the, uh, is a synonym for the gospel. It's a synonym for the gospel. And we notice here that knowledge of the truth... Is associated with those who are chosen of God and those who have the faith. They have faith, faith in Christ, and they are saved. Let's notice in Second Timothy chapter two. 2 Timothy chapter two, verse twenty four. Two twenty-four. What this knowledge of the truth entails. Two twenty-four. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. Patience when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Notice in this passage that those who come to the knowledge of the truth are those who are led to salvation. In verse 25, it says, If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Those who have not properly embraced this knowledge of the truth, they are unsaved people. Unsaved, they are entrapped and ensnared by the devil. He has them captivated. But God grants repentance to people who come to this knowledge of the truth and are delivered from that. That is the, the audience that Paul has in mind when he's writing to Titus. He says, For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. He's talking to those who have properly, authentically received that gospel. However, it is also possible for the knowledge of the truth to be presented... But then reject it. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. 2.20 For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. There he's describing somebody who has been temporarily released and relieved of his sins. That is, he has temporarily come to the knowledge of the truth and he has embraced it, but yet superficially. You note that the two images he uses of a dog and a sow, a dog remained a dog, it was temporarily relieved of its upset stomach and vomited, and, but then it went back to the vomit. And the same with the sow. The sow was temporarily relieved of its filth, but then it went back to the filth. A dog did not become a sheep and then revert back to doghood. And a sow did not become a sheep and revert back to sowhood or to be a swine again. It did not happen that way. They were those people who superficially received this knowledge of the truth. Not truthfully and authentically, but superficially. One more place where we find this superficial knowledge of the truth is Hebrews ten twenty six. Hebrews ten twenty six. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There he clearly speaks of those who have After receiving the knowledge of the truth, they turn away from it. They sin willfully against it and receive a just condemnation for it. Now, this is important in Titus because, like we said, there are wolves on the outside who masquerade as sheep and then come on the inside of churches. There are also those who have superficially embraced the gospel and are inside churches already, and when you meet them, you think they are sheep, when actually they're wolves in sheep's clothing, whether coming from the outside to the inside or already on the inside. And this is why we need to practice discernment. And This is why Titus needs to know. Titus needs to know about this and he needs to discern and understand what he needs to do in his situation, in his local church, because of this reality. Another thing we have to keep in mind is that the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth includes knowledge. Knowledge. Knowledge of God. Knowledge of Christ. Knowledge of who they are through His Word. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There are many people who uh, espouse promoting the faith but devoid of knowledge and devoid of of real knowledge, true knowledge. But we need to pursue knowledge, not as an end. We'll see that in a minute because it's according to godliness. But we do need knowledge. We cannot have knowledge that leads to godliness um, unless you pursue knowledge. Faith cannot be an empty faith. It cannot be a fictional faith. It cannot be just something that we uh, derive from within ourselves, conjure up within ourselves and say, if I have faith enough in something or the other, someone or another, one religion or another, everything's okay. I just need to have some faith. Faith itself is insufficient. It has to be based on knowledge, and he says here, knowledge of the truth. It cannot be just knowledge of anything. It cannot be knowledge of any religion. It cannot be a knowledge of just any philosophy or anything else that people put their faith in. It has to be in the knowledge of the truth. And according to Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1 and verse 5, he says that, "...because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel..." Notice there. "...the word of truth is the gospel." The knowledge of the truth is knowledge of the gospel, the gospel of Christ. If we are proclaiming the gospel of Christ, this is where the truth resides. It is the word of truth. And in verse 6, he says, Which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it, and understood the grace of God in truth. We understand the grace of God in truth. Truth is a necessary requirement. Now this goes very contrary to what we find often. We hear often, even in churches, and even in very uh, evangelical and conservative-sounding places and churches, we hear of, well, that's your opinion, and this is my opinion, and everything's just fine. You can have it your way. I'll, I'll do it my way. Everything will be just fine. Without asking, what does the Bible say about it? It's not a matter of just one man's opinion over another; that one's better than another. We shouldn't be looking at it like that. Yeah. That's that's relativism. That's relativism or postmodernism. These terms uh, are, have been used to describe man-made religion. Anything that's not based on the truth. That's what's the problem that we face they faced it because they have paganism to deal with we have paganism also in fact relativism postmodernism situational ethics syncretism whatever we want to call it it's essentially paganism and polytheism it's the worship of idols rather than the worship of the true god in the way that he said we ought to worship him right. anything that's contrary to the knowledge of the truth then he clarifies which is according to God, godliness, verse one. This knowledge of the truth, the gospel, is according to godliness. The characteristics that God has, Second Peter chapter one, for example, lists those characteristics, the fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5:22 to23. These are ways in which we can know the character of God, the attributes of God. Those attributes are godliness. And those are the attributes that should be inculcated in us. They should be produced in us. They should be the fruit of our life, pre-conversion, post-conversion. We should be able to say to ourselves and others should be able to notice that there was a difference in the way we used to live with the way we live now. We're not the same anymore. Our values have changed, our mind has changed, our heart has changed, our mouth has changed and all that we want to do. It has changed. It has gone in a different direction. We have a different purpose in life. This is important and necessary because as I cited Jude earlier, he says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who are long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 4. He's saying... That these are the two basic characteristics of gospel deniers and heretics. Two basic characteristics. They will preach a gospel that does not require the hearers to live a different life. To live a holy life. To live a righteous and godly life. In fact, they say grace and they turn grace into licentiousness. That is loose living. Live according to your own libertarian will. Live according to however you find you, you want to live. That's okay. It's not sin. So, And they say grace covers it all. Grace takes care of it all. They turn grace into looseness, which isn't the case. That's not what the biblical grace means. Grace produces godliness. That's what the apostle means here. And they also deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. No, no, we don't have to be restrictive and say Jesus is the only way of salvation. We don't need to do His will. It's okay. There are other ways to God. There are other valid paths. All roads lead to Rome. So we can all be just fine and and don't be so uptight about saying Jesus is the only way to God and that we have to live a holy life. That's what they promote. But that's false. The Gospel is according to godliness. It should produce growth in godliness. Verse 2. In the hope of eternal life. This gospel is in the hope of eternal life. We don't put our hope in worldly things. We don't put our hope in carnal things, things that are seen and physical. We don't put our hope in those kinds of things. Putting hope in those kinds of things is foolishness. It's insanity. Why should we put our hope in things of this world? We should put our hope in the invisible creator of the world. And this invisible creator of the world teaches us to put hope in unseen things, in eternal things. This is what is meant in Hebrews chapter 11. We have a definition of what faith is and its relationship to hope. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. Faith puts things, or puts uh, hope in things unseen. It has a conviction and an assurance that those unthing, unseen things are true. Though I don't see those things now, I believe that they are true, and that gives us hope. And that's hope in eternal life, the hope of eternal life. We have hope that we will see our Lord face to face. We have hope that He will raise us from the dead, just as He was raised from the dead immortally. We have hope that we will be delivered from death permanently and forever. We have hope that we're not going to experience sin And the evil consequences of sin. No more suffering and pain. No more tears. Nothing because of the presence of sin and evil in the world anymore. Because we put our hope in heavenly things. We put our hope in Christ. This is the gospel that Christ preached. And this is our only way of salvation. Then, verse 2. Which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. He has to explain it this way because naturally, not the sincerely inquisitive, but the perniciously inquisitive people will say, Well, if this is the truth, if this is right, then why did God choose to do it 4,000 years later? after creation? Why did he do it 2,000 years from our time uh, frame, in our perspective, 2,000 years ago? Why did he do it then? Why didn't he do it even before? Why didn't he wait another 6,000 years or another 10,000 years? Why did he do it at the time he did? Critics will say that. And they will say that in order to strip away the true gospel. They will say that in order to say, okay, then... Before Christ came, there was another way of salvation. And after Christ came, there doesn't necessarily have to be one way of salvation. Another way is possible. Because Christ came just at one point in history, therefore, what He did does not have to necessarily apply to all people before and after Him. Who said so? This is... Universalism and inclusivism. This is pluralism. It has different names and different uh, shades of meanings and and beliefs. But basically, they're saying you don't have to believe in Jesus alone, only Him, to go to heaven. Whether you lived a thousand years before Christ's incarnation or a thousand years after His incarnation, it doesn't matter. You don't have to believe in Him to be saved. But the Apostle's saying, that's not the way it works. And he's defending it right here by saying, Which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago? God who's not a liar, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he not said, and will he not do it? Or has he not spoken, and will he not make it good? Yes, Numbers 23, 19. Yes, he cannot lie, he does not lie, he speaks the truth. Well, when did He do it? Here He says, promised long ages ago. He first promised it in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. Even some scholars, not all scholars, but some scholars will teach that that is the first proclamation of the Gospel. They even come up with the Greek or Latin word, proto-euangelion, in order to make it known that that is the first proclamation of the Gospel. In Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would bruise or crush the head of the serpent. That is Christ conquering the works of the devil, as it says in 1 John chapter 3. So, that's the first proclamation of it. So, everyone from Adam's time onward, Adam, Eve, Abel, Enoch, their descendant, Noah, And Abraham, everyone from then until the coming of Christ, going even into Moses and David and Isaiah, they all put their hope in the coming of Christ, that He would come and die for their sins and rise from the dead. Just as we put our hope in what we know to be factually accomplished in history 2,000 years ago. They look forward to the cross and we look backward to the cross and put our hope in the cross of Christ. This is what he's saying. At the right time, at the proper time, God manifested this. He manifested this and He even predicted and prophesied that in due time, God would send forth the gospel from Jerusalem to the remotest parts of the earth. This is also proclaimed and predicted. Psalms 96 to 100, Psalm 67, Psalm 117, uh, Isaiah chapter 25, 6 to 12. There are many passages of the Old Testament that clearly and distinctly say that the gospel in due time will be proclaimed um, indiscriminately to all the nations. You see, before the coming of Christ, it was mostly restricted to the Jewish nation. God intended it to be that way. But after the coming of Christ, God intended to use the apostles of Christ to proclaim the gospel not only among the Jews, but throughout the world from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. And this is what he's saying here. This is why Titus in Crete... You see, Titus is in Crete, which is not in Jerusalem. It's not in the land of Israel. It's in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And he's there because of this, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. In due time, the gospel is published... Abroad, And this is according to the commandment of God our Savior. You see, he is asserting. He is asserting the fact that God commanded him to do so. God com- He didn't invent it. He's a Jew, and he would not naturally think of inventing something like that. Unless he were a crazy Jew, a crazy man. And he was accused of many things, of, uh, even of that. But that's not the way it happened. It happened because God ordained it. Notice it says in Acts 9, 15, the Lord Jesus speaks to the Apostle Paul. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. There, are Gentiles, kings, kings, pagan kings, there's no Jewish king, and the sons of Israel. There it's very clear that he is commissioned and commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to go and preach like that. Why do we, we have to hear of this? Because people could say and would say that this commissioning of the gospel and it going to various and, and multiple peoples That that is not of God. It can and should be restricted to one place or one one region, to one language, to one ethnicity. It doesn't have to be published. It doesn't have to go anywhere else. It can stay here. The other thing that he's combating is that the false teachers would accuse Paul of diluting the truth. They accuse Paul of diluting the truth. They would accuse him of doing so and saying, you're not expecting these believers in Christ to do this or that of our background, of our traditions. You're not expecting them, and therefore you are diluting the truth, Paul. And Paul's assertion is, no, I'm not doing that. This is according to the commandment of God our Savior. As well, we ought to note, he's not boasting when he's addressing these issues like this. Some people think that there's pride welling up in Paul, and that's why he has to talk this way and write this way. No, he talks and writes this way because his opponents are slandering him. And his opponents, when they slander him, the messenger of God, they slander Christ. And when they slander Christ, they slander God the Father. Luke ten sixteen. He explains that when they don't receive you, they don't receive me, Jesus. And when they don't receive Jesus, they don't receive the one who sent him, which is God the Father. This is the problem. This is why he has to assert and say clearly, no, 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 God commanded this. And I'm saying it so you know clearly, and I'm defending the truth when I say this. I say God is the one who commanded me. Therefore, don't take my words to be human words Invented by some fanatic. No. That's not who I am. Which, which is a common problem. Throughout history, everybody, everybody, at one point or another, has to deal with Paul the Apostle. He wrote much of the New Testament. They have to deal with, was he a true <coughs> Apostle? Did he correctly understand what happened to him? Did he correctly and accurately write these words of the Bible? Did he interpret the Old Testament properly? Did he have a proper interpretation and hermeneutic of the Old Testament? Did he or did he not? Everybody has to deal with that. Those who detract from Paul, those who walk away from Paul, plunge themselves into a false gospel. They plunge themselves into hell also. They do it to themselves. Therefore, we, we have to consider that whatever Paul says is according to the commandment of God our Savior. And believe it. Believe it. And mind you, a lot of the critics of Paul never, ever suffer the way the Apostle Paul suffered. Never would, would they do that. They love to live a comfortable, convenient life. They love to have... Their wonderful circumstances, their luxuries, their offices with plenty of lighting, plenty of A.C. and heat. They'd love to have hardly anybody walk into that office. They just want to sit there and read their books and write. That's all they want to do. That's the kind of person who misleads the common people into thinking Paul was not a true and genuine apostle. He didn't write according to the commandment of God. No, I don't trust those kinds of men. Those men are wicked men. They are very selfish, narcissistic men. I don't want to trust them. I would rather trust the Apostle Paul. And he calls it, according to God our Savior, God our Savior, both the Father and the Son can and should be called Savior. Both the Father and the Son can and should be called our Savior. Notice in chapter 3, Titus 3, verse 4. Titus 3, 4. He said, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. In that passage, it seems in verse 4, he's talking about God the Father being God our Savior. And in verse 6, Jesus Christ is our Savior. So, both terms. The Father is Savior in the sense that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So, He is the origin of salvation in that sense. And then the Son is the Savior in that He actually carried out the will of the Father. He came into the world, lived perfectly, died even though He was sinless, He died on the cross... and He rose from the dead, He accomplished our redemption. In that sense, in the practical sense, Christ is the Savior. Both our Savior. So, we cannot say we believe in Christ as our Savior... without believing in the Father as our Savior. Right. Because some people deny the Trinity... and they pick and choose and, and misuse these biblical words and restrict them unnecessarily and wrongfully, uh, counter-biblically, they contradict this truth. We cannot do that. We have to believe in Christ, we have to believe in the Father, and even in verse 5, Titus 3, 5, in the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three of them uh, are active in our salvation. There is no salvation apart from the Trinity. So a denial of the Trinity shows that a person does not understand salvation. Amen. There are false teachers out there. those who uh, Many of them claim to be Christians. There's oneness, Pentecostalism, or Jesus-only apostolic churches. They believe that only Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is Michael the Archangel, the first and foremost creation of God. They call him Savior, but they don't assign any deity to Jesus Christ. And they deny that he is the divine Son of the Father. And they deny the deity and personhood of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not possessing any divine nature, and he is not a person. They refer to the Spirit as it, as a force. In fact, they believe the Spirit is the active force of Jehovah God. That's their phrase. Active force of Jehovah God. In one way or another, a denial of the true God is a denial of the gospel. Amen. So we have to make sure we understand who we're talking about. Verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. He writes to his... Beloved Titus, he calls him here my true child because if we read 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 8, especially 2 Corinthians 8, and as well in Galatians chapter 2, he took Titus along with him when he went to Jerusalem to confront Cephas and Barnabas because of their compromise of the gospel. He took Titus with him. Titus, a Greek. He, Titus was an uncircumcised Greek. His, his lineage was fully Greek. And he is a pastor of these churches. He's a guide and a, and a pastor of all of these churches. He's a faithful man. He's a righteous man. He's a trustworthy man. He could send, in 2 Corinthians, he could, the apostle could send Titus with a message and with money, and he could be trusted with all of that. Yeah. That's the kind of trustworthy and faithful man Titus was. He proved himself to be a true child in a common faith. He proved himself not to be a false son, a rebellious son, a wicked son. He didn't do that. He proved himself to be a true child. The Apostle Paul discipled him and perhaps even converted him. We don't know those details, but he did disciple him over the the years of their ministry together. And notice it's a common faith. The faith that Titus has, being a Greek, a Gentile, and uncircumcised, and now in leadership over these churches, that faith that he possesses is the same faith that Paul possesses. The Apostle Paul being a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, in regards to the law found blameless, that, that is, he meticulously carried out the law. That's what he's saying, Philippians 3. So, in contrast, Titus was devoid of all those things, yet believes in Christ. Paul was full of all those things, yet devoid of Christ, and needed to believe in Christ. And once Paul believed in Christ, and Titus believed in Christ, they were one in Christ. Amen. Jew and Gentile together. And this is important. It's important that the different groups like this, the different groups that are typically factional, typically divisive and and, and warring against each other, they have to come together. But the way they come together in the godly sense, the true peace and reconciliation happens when they believe in Christ and worship Christ according to his word. Not according to their cultures, not according to their habits, not according to their preferences, not uh, according to whatever my father used to do, my grandfather used to do, and great-grandfather used to do. Not according to any of those kinds of things. But the worship of God and the love of God and obedience to God has to conform to this common faith. The faith that's in the Scriptures. And this is the one to whom he wishes to And prays for grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. He wishes for these two. These two benefits or aspects of the goodness of God. God is the one who grants grace for salvation to believe. His grace produces our salvation. It's not a cooperation between us and God. It's not as though it's our, our will plus His will working together. No, it's His will working in our will and changing our will from being stubborn and being hard to being tender and being pliable. That's the way God works, His grace. But His grace not only saves us, but His grace also sanctifies us. Amen. This is why we need His grace every day. His grace, those things that we don't deserve in the Christian life. Everything comes from God. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James 1.17. What do you have that you have not received? Right. 1 Corinthians 4.7. So everything comes from Him. It emanates from Him. So we need more of Him. Even Titus needs more of Him and peace. Peace is first reconciliation between us and God and then us with one another. That's what peace is. Biblical peace. Biblical peace is reconciliation between God and us and that comes from the gospel. And then naturally in terms of the proper response once we have peace with God We begin to seek peace with one another. That's why Jesus said in Matthew five, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If or in Romans twelve, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So we seek that. We used to be at war with our father and mother and siblings. But now that we're in Christ, we seek for reconciliation. We seek for peace. We do whatever biblically is possible in order to seek a relationship and love and harmony with our relatives, with our friends. We seek to do that. That's the kind of peace that is evidenced when we have peace with God. That's what we need to pursue. And peace is another way of describing loving God first with all of our heart and loving our neighbor as ourselves. When we have peace with God, we also have love that we pursue with God, which is the greatest commandment. And then we love our neighbor or love our brother in 1 John, love as we love ourselves. And if that's not manifested, then there's no reconciliation. If there is still hostility and enmity and strife that's persistent, there's no change, pre-conversion, post-conversion, pre-profession and post-profession of faith, if that's not evident, then the, the peace with God has not occurred. The love of God has not occurred. According to 1 John 4, 19 to 21, where he says, We love, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God. Whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. That the one who loves God. Should love his brother also. 1 first? First John 4.19-21. to 1 John 4.19. And these come from God the Father. And from Christ Jesus our Savior. The world offers peace. The world offers grace. The world offers harmony. They say, give peace a chance, right? They say things like that. They they say that we should be living harmoniously. And they put all kinds of symbols of various religions on the bumper stickers and imagine that you can have peace and reconciliation and grace and mutual love for one another that way. But that's impossible. We cannot coexist that way. Coexistence does not happen that way. And even in those nations that promote that, they have hostility and war and death and murder and rape and genocide all the time. Sure, They have it all the time. They like to prop it up in countries such as India, but it doesn't really happen. It doesn't really happen. All of this kind of misery happens in India where you have all of the major religions there and they say that we, we are a pluralistic society or they say secular society. No, it's not pluralistic and secular. In not in a right sense, not in a very practical sense, no it creates even more hostility and animosity between religions, ethnic groups stratas of society the rich and the poor, men and women, parents against children children against parents, it creates all kinds of hostility, it only comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, now we're back to the true gospel, the true gospel with the knowledge of the true God, that's the only way so let's pursue it that way he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.